Hi, everyone. This is author and filmmaker Barry Norman, and I'm on KFMP Misery Point Radio. What are you on? Troglodytes, thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. Appreciate you crawling out from under your rock to join me here in the wasteland. Still blows my mind that y'all choose to take time out of your busy day to support me, to support this show, and of course, to support the artists that make this show what it is. And as y'all know by now, I support artists of all kinds. The musicians, the writers, the illustrators, the filmmakers, the actors, the producers, and really all members of the artistic communities, independent, established, or somewhere in those gray areas in between. Today's guest, Barry Norman, is no stranger to our little corner of the wasteland. He and I first spoke in April of 2020 as he was geared up to promote the launch of two separate books he had written. And as it turns out, was also right when society was really first dealing with the reality of the COVID situation and the world was going into lockdown. But being the media junkie and deranged genius that he is, Barry kept himself busy and has completed his newest book, a hybrid graphic novel called Ambient Sanity. So when Barry reached out to tell me about his new release, I was excited to have him back on. He gave me the full scoop on the origin of the story, why he chose this particular format, the role that music, especially early prog rock, plays in the central story arc, his connection to the main character, and a deeply personal diagnosis that at least partially explains his mental process and approach to storytelling. He was also gracious enough to catch me up on the status of his book, Poetry in the Sand, a biography that he was commissioned to write about pro wrestler Sid Vicious that was suddenly pulled from circulation soon after we first spoke and now sits in publication limbo amidst a quagmire of controversy and legality. And, oh yeah, he also wrote a play which sounds epically badass. So, kick back, open your mind, and enjoy this conversation with one of the most unique voices in the entertainment industry today. Check it out. Hey, Barry, welcome back to the show, man. Awesome to talk to you again. It's uh, It's been a very long time. I know we're going to have just a blast kind of rehashing the old stuff and talking about some of your new shit you got coming down the road here. Yeah, same, same with you, Mike. It's, it ha- it's not like there's been anything else going on in the world, so we might be able to figure out something to talk about <laughs> yeah. uh, since things have been so dull and, and not, not nothing going on. Yeah, uh, yeah, nothing happening in the last uh, year and some change. Uh, last time we talked... It was, I believe, April of uh, 2020, um, and uh, we had just got done chatting, and you went straight to Facebook jail, if I remember properly, because uh, you done pissed somebody <laughs> off, which to me is really funny, because if anybody knows Barry and what he posts about, it's pretty much like dogs and cats <laughs> and cute shit, and maybe like a little personal family thing here and there, and then maybe like a funny meme, you know, non-politically related, and nothing controversial in, in uh, Barry's feeds, yet here you are getting tossed in the old Facebook chail and uh, I remember like oh this is going to be a great start to the uh, promotional run for our little chit chat there and I've been in Facebook jail six times since uh, just two in the last couple of weeks (laughs) Uh, I mean one I got overturned 
But no, you're right. On on when people come to my page, um, it's my page. I pay so much money for it. I do want to have cute puppy dogs or pretty waterfalls. Or like I said, I do get personal about you know, my families. You know that the, since I don't have any left about their passing. Sure. On other people's threads, I have ah. no problem. You know, you, you you say something absolutely really, I'll, I'll get in it. And that's when Facebook, you know, you know community standards. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm in and out of that thing, and I, I'm sure the next time is going to be like forever. Yeah, yeah, probably right after we talk, you'll actually go back in there. So uh, <laughs> I hope I don't and, like it. They know me. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, the, since the last time we talked, um, you were just getting ready to publish uh, your book about Sid Vicious, which obviously there was some controversy there. You kind of snuck in a delightful Denver doldrums that kind of got in there. And then now you've just put out a uh, kind of a, a really cool hybrid uh, graphic novel, uh, Ambient Sanity, um, which apparently released in Germany ahead of time, which is absolutely crazy. So you've kind of you've kept yourself busy. And so let's just kind of get a recap on uh, on what's been going on with all of that stuff here in the meantime. Okay, so uh, Denver Doldrums was the last book that I had put out and released, uh, the, the third book in my trilogy, since I'm such a flaming narcissist, it took three books for me to write about myself. To talk about yourself, so, yeah. So that, to talk about, <laughs> and, I, and I thought I wasn't going to do that again, and son of a gun of ambient sanity isn't really me in a lot of ways. I mean, I just can't get away from myself. Um, that came about a couple of ways. For, first of all, um, you know, I have a PhD in film that I did it on Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, where I actually uh, applied a lot of quantum physics uh, no, to, to the movie. I had to do a lot of research. PhDs are research. And so I was talking about singularity and simultaneity and all that. So that kind of stuck in my head for the last year. And then I watched a lot of the Big Bang Theory, which obviously has a lot of quantum physics. Right. And then all the Marvel, the, the MCU. I mean, things like Loki coming out now, uh, the Avengers, has a lot to do with quantum physics and the timeline and things like that. And, and then COVID hit. And like I said, I'm, I'm without COVID, I was isolated anyway. And one, one thing which I actually haven't admitted to anyone for years, which I only have been lately, is I suffer from paranoid schizophrenia. Okay. Now, when you tell people that, the first thing they think of is a beautiful mind and that I must be having these long conversations with people who aren't there or their voices in my head telling them, kill him. And that's <laughs> not the way it is for everybody. I mean, I, I guess I'm paranoid schizophrenic light. I don't have full-blown hallucinations. I don't have audio no hallucinations. But things have been getting a little bit weird with COVID and all that. Plus, I'm having horrible sleep deprivation. So all those things kind of kept in my head. And I was thinking about isolation, uh, all these things about quantum physics. So I came up with an idea about a guy. And I just I made him a, um, a, a defense contractor, a brilliant defense contractor, whose major hobby is prog rock. He loves, you know, the Moody Blues. He loves Pink Floyd. He loves that type of music. Heavy, you know, yes, heavy synthesizers, sequencers, things like that. And he's also owns all that equipment. And he plays himself. And what he likes to do is play the specific exact pieces of the, the parts that he likes from Pink Floyd, whatever, on the equipment that they use. And by doing so, he became convinced that he found a sympathetic frequency through the music he was playing to a frequency in a nearby alternate dimension that was kind of putting him back and forth, a little bit in one, a little bit in another. And it was causing what he called a time dilation. He felt that things weren't quite right with him. Like things, you could call it deja vu, like things would happen and, and then he would catch up to it. 
and was freaking him out to the point where he couldn't go. He couldn't go to work anymore. The defense contractor, he, he, was a, he had a big job with a high clearance for this defense contractor. And they didn't want to lose him, so they said, okay, you can't. You said you can't go out in the world anymore because it's too much stimulation. We need you. Can you work at home by computer? So this was kind of influenced by COVID. So most of the book takes place with him on a computer to two other people. One is a psychiatrist you know, that the defense contractor ordered that he has to see. And then he personally reached out to an MIT quantum uh, no, um, experimental physicist. Uh, I mean, actually a theoretical physicist to try to figure out if what he's thinking and what's going on with him is theoretically possible. And the MIT physicist is actually someone that I reached out to for consultation. And this uh, physicist said he likes talking to people like me who aren't, you know, physicists don't have that level of experience in it because he says we sometimes come up with ideas that all the people in his field don't because they're so steeped in everything, all the math and the whiteboards. So that became a part of the story, too, that this physicist that this guy reached out to would actually return his phone calls on Skype and all that. So MOFA is, is these people talking on Skype. The, uh, the physicist actually thinks there's no way he can actually disprove what this guy is saying. And the psychiatrist wants to talk to the physicist to find out, is, is this guy insane or is this possible? So the, the psychiatrist and the physicist start talking. So the, the thing becomes, is there a fine line between insanity or the idea of something like this could happen, that there really are dimensions which a lot of physicists do claim are possible. They're trying to do the math to prove it. No one can prove it. So what does that mean? If what he is saying is true, that would revolutionize psychiatry. A psychiatrist can't say, is this person having, is, is he insane? Is he actually having hallucinations? Or is what he is claiming to be seeing, thinking, experiencing true? I, I can no longer diagnose everyone as schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever now that here's this whole new paradigm that I have to be faced with. And there actually is psychiatry that has been dealing with that very thing. So the more I got into researching, and the research is incredible. I mean, every now and then I'd read a paper and I'd, for a second I'd wrap my head around it and then it would go away. Because it's that you know, ethereal, that heavy in science. So that is what the book, the book is very, very sciencey. So I, I try to really give good credence, just like Marvel does. I mean, everything they show in, uh, you know, in, in the timeline with the Infinity Stones has some th physicists saying this is kind of what we think of the, of the timeline. If you do this to the timeline, that will happen. This will, um, so a lot of it is based in science. A lot of it is based out of the weirdness out of, out of uh, a guy who has severe PTSD, paranoid schizophrenia, living through COVID. Talking to people like we're talking now <laughs> and, and trying to make sense of your world. Um, and part of the motivation, without giving too much away, is uh, the defense contract who's experiencing this has never felt quite right in this university he lives in. I mean, it reminds me of my favorite Brian Wilson song, I Just Wasn't Meant for These Times, which is something I have personally felt. I always thought I wasn't supposed to be born in 1957. I would have been so much better if I was born in 1930 and had my you know, prime years in the 50s where things were starting out in television and film, which are my two major parts of my field. Right. And, and because I thought this book needed illustration, I found a guy on Facebook who lives in Brazil, a guy named Gene Pedroso, who is manga influenced as far as that type of artwork. And I sent him my manuscript and he got it immediately. He absolutely loved it. And he's, he, he, uh, he took on the, the job of, of illustrating it. So it's not a total graphic novel. You couldn't get the science of 
every single panel was word balloons. Right. So he, he, he has done 25 illustrations that are brilliant. And he asked me, which scenes do I want him to illustrate? And I said, you do the ones that strike you when you're reading it. What do you want to make come to life with your illustration? And the illustrations that he has done is exactly what I would have chosen for him. So there's a lot of text in the book. So that's why I call it a hybrid. But his illustrations, just I, I just make certain parts of the book, to me, pop. Is it set uh, up just, in a in a fashion so it's kind of like a like a novel format, but then periodically there'll just be an image, um, and I'm I'm guessing that in some capacity where the images are located in the book is kind of conducive to the timeline that's being referred to at that particular point. That's exactly right. The illustrations, absolutely, I had to place where they are happening in the book. And he did draw them in graphic novel fashion. In other words, it could be, an illustration could be three separate scenes of what's going on right there. Yeah. So I just love what he did. I mean, he, he's a brilliant illustrator. The manga influence works well. For someone reading all this heavy, heavy science, I think to every now and again to go to a page and see one of his illustrations where he is depicting certain things happening in, you know, in those pages, I just think makes the, 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 this whole idea come alive. Uh, so it's never it's only been done before in children's books where they'll have a lot of text and then pictures. So you can call it an illustrated book. Technically, it's not incorrect. I personally look at it as a hybrid novel, graphic novel. Yeah. And um, now I saw a preview of this on I think it was Blurb, right? They have, uh, I don't right. know, 15 or 20 or so pages that you can kind of check through. And the, the illustrative style is definitely super awesome. And I'm a huge kind of a comic book nerd. So um, I definitely appreciate kind of the way that it's it's being presented. And I guess looking at like the turnaround time on this, like that's pretty quick. I mean, I, I get it that a lot of it was tied to the current timelines and structures that we're all kind of living in but this idea had to have been kind of bouncing around in your head prior to COVID hitting at least in some capacity idea has been bouncing my head for years like i said i did my phd back in you know, 08 right. on stanley kubrick where a lot of the what i'm investigating in this book is something i'm thinking about gotcha okay when you have paranoid schizophrenia i mean like I said, even though I'm light, I'm not talking to people who aren't there. I don't think there's a Russian plot to kidnap me or anything like that. But it <laughs> is something yet. that you have to. Yeah, not yet. I mean, my wiring isn't quite right. So I definitely look through things in a different kind of lens. COVID kind of made it more real in some ways. I mean, and so, yeah, a lot of these ideas have been percolating. And as we discussed the way I write the same way I make films, everything is spontaneous. Even something like this that was heavy in science, I didn't know where the plot was going until I got there. And so sometimes you write yourself in a corner and then you have to figure out how to get out of it. And so it's very, very organic. And I was wondering if something that is so sciencey, where I, I did a lot of research, I mean, some people might have to go to, uh, you know, to, to research to figure out some of the, uh, the concepts. I'm hoping not. I'm hoping even if you don't get everything, because even I don't. Like I said, I, would, I could get it for a second and then it goes away and then I get it. But I wanted to have, you know, the, you know, just not whatever is in my brain as far as what I think could be if you're in another dimension and what that would mean and how that and all the things that they're trying to theorize and hypothesize, because there is a lot of that. I mean, as far as multiple dimensions, I mean, everything that Marvel uh, puts in their movies, physicists are talking about now. Yeah, this is what they're going. They, they would love to be able to prove dark matter. They'd love to be able to prove that other dimensions exist because 
you can't unify all the theory, you know, Einstein unified theory without other dimensions. In string theory, you know, the one that Sheldon Cooper did, you need 10 dimensions. In other theories, you need up to like 24. It's exhausting to try to wrap your arms around this. And everything that's going on with me and every everybody I attended, you don't have to be paranoid, schizophrenic to feel exhausted right. and completely not the universe is not quite right right now for everybody, not just for someone like me. It's everything is off completely. Yeah. So this was, I guess, my way of describing once again my narcissism. I was describing a lot of myself, what I was feeling. I tried to make the character very different from me, but I do like progressive rock. I don't play keyboards. I'm certainly <laughs> not a defense contractor. Um, and and then the other part of the book that I did was is uh, – a backstory. I, I don't really like to call it a backstory because I, I don't want. I want people to interpret it. If uh, every character, the three characters, I go back and forth talking about things that happened to them earlier in their life. So some people may think, oh, anything that talks about dimensions in the timeline, you're going back and forth the timeline. So maybe this is what's happening in real time. Or some people think, oh, these these are origin stories. Why did this person become a psychiatrist? Why did this person become a physicist? That wasn't my specific intention. But I can see someone getting that from, oh, that's why we're, we're reading about uh, you know, uh, Dr. Alvarez, you know, the psychiatrist, when, when she was 10 or things that happened to her parents that affected her. Yeah. So those stories are popping up throughout the book. You know, it's, and it's funny, too, when you look at, you know, the classic interpretation of, say, science fiction, and then you look at a modern interpretation of science fiction, those lines are starting to become more blurred because as we're seeing, a lot of this stuff is moving past the theoretical and into the possible. And I'm curious if as you're writing this, um, you know, are, are you feeling any kind of like a, a catharsis or any kind of a, you know, internal dialogue that, you know, this stuff that was once just conceptual can, can now actually be, and that's validating in your own mind. Yes and no. The, the word catharsis is a very, very important one because if you, if, I don't know if you read any of my you know, uh, trilogy books or seen any of my films where I'm talking a lot about what's happened in my life and people have always said, it must have been so cathartic to write that or that scene you did in that film. And I, my answer has always been no. Not really. It's painful. I said, I feel it's necessary. But the other thing you said, which is extremely interesting, is validation. And the answer to that is absolutely yes. One of the things I've been doing while writing the book and doing now is we are rewatching uh, Outer Limits shows, the original. The original. That was my second favorite show when it came out to the Twilight Zone. And, and, and I, but I forgot a lot of them. The Twilight Zone I've seen so many times. Outer Limits, I hadn't. And some of the shows in the Outer Limits are like, oh my God, they predicted this. They, to me, they predicted social media. They had one episode where this alien life form with the United States defense created this thing where you can see what anybody's doing and it becomes addictive, is what one of the defense contract, you know, a, a person in, in the Air Force, an animal in the Air Force. It's addictive to be able to drop in on anybody on the planet and see everything they're doing. Well, how, what better way to describe social media than we have this window, like what you and I are doing with Skype or on Facebook or Instagram, into anyone, and people spend hours on it because they can drop in on anybody. So it's like, oh, my God. And, they, and, and in, in the, the episode, they said, this has to be destroyed. We can't have this. This yeah. is just too, it's just so it's like some of the episodes back in, in the year one of The Outer Limits, they only had two seasons because after season one, everyone left to go work on Star Trek. <laughs> season, season one is brilliant. And so many of the shows so were so predictive of a lot of things that we're going through now. So when I was watching it, it's like, 
it's just amazing. I mean, those are some of the best minds that were working in science fiction television. Harlan Ellison wrote several of the um, episodes, but they really were predicting things. And I think that show hasn't gotten nearly enough credit for having a window into the future, you know, 40, 50 years later. So yeah, absolutely. Things that I thought of, things that other people thought of that are obviously jumbling around in my head. And I just happened to get out in this book. And I'm really interested to see what people think of this. And when they read it, I hope they don't think he went too sciencey, too nerdy. It becomes too hard to read when I get really intensive into that. That's another reason I thought illustrations would really, really help, you know, to, to break that up. I felt if I didn't get really, really, you know, nerdy with the science, it would just sound like I'm just I just I just couldn't feel I could deal with that subject matter without really trying to figure out what I'm talking about and not just everything coming out of my brain. Yeah, you know, nobody wants to be just there. <laughs> there would there would have to be some form of I guess lightening of the language just to get people to be able to understand the basic concept unless everybody who happens to read this is going to be a physicist or a mathematician or somebody who's involved in you know, some super high-end science-y kind of stuff. I mean, it still needs to be approachable and understandable from a, uh, I don't know, a plebe standpoint for somebody such as myself uh, to be able to get the overarching concepts. Um, and from what I've seen of it, I, I feel like it's going to be interesting enough uh, and make it different enough so that it's not just like everything else out there uh, and still kind of get those highly technical concepts out there that are, are floating around in, in your deranged noggin. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd like to think that I did that. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that, um, that yes, I mean, I, I think that any physicist that reads this will probably have a chuckle because obviously I don't do the actual math in the pages. And when I was consulting with that MIT physicist, he says, you can't really do what you're doing without the math. Right. I, I, I wasn't going to have equations in the book. I mean, I actually have, <laughs> I actually have an equation on the cover. Yeah. Uh, you know, floating around the, the main character's head. But I didn't want to go there inside the book because that's not going to work. You can do that in the Big Bang Theory because it's just Sheldon staring at a whiteboard and you realize this thing is complicated, but you don't really have to understand it. Right. And because uh, you know, the psychiatrist desperately wants to understand it, to, fit, to, to know where she's going with this, but the contractor is obviously brilliant enough to get it. I mean, he's, he's obviously studied a lot of stuff on his own. But that's why I do a lot of the, the, the backstories that in the past, so you can go, go away from that and get into a time when they were younger and these other things were happening to them. And you have a psychiatrist desperately trying to understand everything because of what she thinks it's going to do to her field and what that would do to her personally. So I hope that the science doesn't bog it down to people who oh, I can't read anymore. This is just too much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll see. But I felt it was important to really try to convey by actually quoting actual papers that have been written, you know, from from actual trying to or really trying to postulate all this going on. So we'll see. I mean, I it's, it's definitely not a no a YA book. No, this is not a, not a young adult <laughs> book. But I, I mean, I think people in high school or even bright people in grade school would, would might like it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I you never. I never wrote a book or or made a film because I'm from looking for a specific audience. I thought I, someone might find it. Someone might like it. I have no idea. I don't think I'm going to be you know, a you no know, a million copy bestseller. Yeah. No, that doesn't. No, and I don't do anything. If that happens, I'm not going to complain. But <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not betting on that happening. I'm hoping that whoever you no know, you no know, picks these up and reads and finds wow that there's some cool stuff in here. Yeah. 
And do you conceptualize this as simply it's a standalone, it's started, it's finished, and it's done? Or do you see this as something that you might be able to explore in further installments? I absolutely when I first when I first wrote it, I was not thinking of it as a series, although that's that's the way to get really published, especially with COVID. A lot of the publishers are saying we have this writer that we know the series of books he or she has done has this amount of people are going to buy it. So anything that's written in the series. So I didn't start writing that, but where it's ended, I'm thinking there's so many ways I can go with this. Yeah. I mean, so absolutely. I mean, I haven't thought of you know, a book too, because like I said, the way I do everything, it's spontaneous prose, but I absolutely do see where this can go into several different, no, two is to a series book. Uh, hopefully that the characters that I present and the fact that of the situation, other characters could be brought in that aren't in this one. So yeah, you no know, long answer as usual, cause that's me. It absolutely could go into other books. That's, I forgot to shut off my email. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> you hear that loud thing. <laughs> bing. I thought that was just my brain going off. Um, so, you Listen know, let me talk that happens, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, looking at your, your kind of style of writing and kind of digging into how people perceive you and reading reviews and things like that, you get kind of tossed in, uh, with a lot of the kind of, uh, conceptual and stream of consciousness writers, you hear like Kerouac kind of brought up as an influence and things like that, or Hunter S. Thompson and the way that your prose is very conversational. Um, do you feel that's an accurate assessment? I am like, unbelievably flattered when I'm compared to Kerouac and Hunter S. Thompson, because those are absolutely my two favorite writers. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to ape them, but I know part of, I mean, I've, I've read virtually everything both have done. Um, so absolutely, if someone wants to compare me to those writers, I'm ecstatic. Uh, a couple of other writers I've been compared to is Pat Conroy. Uh, Pat Conroy wrote a lot about himself, and several of those have been made into films. Uh, the Great Santini is probably his most well-known movie that was based on one of his books. So being compared to him was very, very complimentary. Someone actually uh, compared me to uh, Hemingway, who also writes a lot about himself. I don't see my writing style, no, like Hemingway. Uh, another one of my favorite writers that I would love to be compared to would be Kurt Vonnegut. I was just going to bring that up because he's one of my favorites, and one of the things that I like the best about uh, Vonnegut um, is that he kind of inserts himself into, he's like breaking that fourth wall, right? Like he's talking about a character, he's talking about a situation. All of a sudden he's telling you about something that happened to him directly. And all of a sudden he's now he's back out of it and he's relaying how that ties into this. And there's tons of cool stuff about his past and his life in Schenectady and, you know, uh, his, his old man working for like the electric company and just all kinds of cool stuff. And, but it's very conversational and it's it's short on um, like long descriptive passages. It's like boom to the point. This happened, and here it is. And uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of of Kurt Vonnegut and that style of writing. So that's awesome. I'm well, glad I, to hear you say that. I met Vonnegut. I I got the ch a chance to meet Kurt Vonnegut. He gave the library dedication speech. We had a new library at my college my freshman year in 1976. I was already a huge Vonnegut fan. I mean, my uh, my uh, senior picture in high school, 1975, was Goodbye Blue Monday. Oh. I thought, ooh, isn't that cool? From you know, No one's going to – everyone is doing things. It's nice to be important. It's no, more important to be nice or you know, what a long, strange trip it's been. So I quoted Vonnegut. Uh, last year, I actually wrote a very, very long short story in which one of the characters is Vonnegut. And he and the main character strike up a friendship and write back and forth to each other. So I'm now trying to literally write the way Vonnegut writes 
in these letters to this other character. And what I think is interesting about this short story is I think in some ways it predicted 1-6, the January 6th insurrection. Yeah. Uh, because the story is about this kid who in high school starts liking music that he finds is revolutionary, not in a musical sense, but that it can actually spur people on to action. And that's what he grabs onto. Music can do so much more than I just listen to it. So he, when the class comes out, he loves the class. And he ends up starting like a music magazine in New York that he hopes is going to, to urge people to go forward. And then some um, so some artist starts releasing uh, you know music videos on like walls you know outside, so basically spurring people to violence because he's saying there's so much violence going on. He's the, the artist is predicting violence on the right, and he's trying to get activists to spur violence on the left. Is it's the only way we're going to meet this? Yeah. So I, I mean, it kind of. I mean, this was before January 6th when I wrote it. Right. So to me, it kind of spurs on that there's going to be some type of political violence you know, going on and things like that. So I, I shouldn't say I predicted it because that's giving myself way too much credit. <laughs> but there, there is certain references in there. And like I said, Vonnegut yeah. is an actual character where I had the, the, the fun of really trying to write just like him. Uh, so I went over. Uh, Vonnegut has written a lot of letters in his life. Yeah. So I was looking at those letters to try to see, you know, to try to get a style. And so that was fun, writing new material through Vonnegut, who was one of my favorite artists, who I actually got a chance to meet and listen you know, to uh, deliver a speech in person. So, um, yeah, anyone wants to uh, compare me to Vonnegut, you know, thank you. <laughs> you get a signed book. Nice. I was uh, I was actually just thinking about him the other day. Um, I was going back and speaking of letters. Uh, I, I came across a copy of, uh, of Fate's Worse Than Death, which is kind of like a, a compilation of letters and kind of essays and kind of more educational style things that, that he was doing later on. Uh, and then I also came across uh, uh, a copy of, uh, of Slaughterhouse Five, which is my, my personal favorite work that he did. And there was the whole the whole concept in there about like Billy Pilgrim, and then how you know part of the trans transports him like to uh, this this fictional Trafalgar planet, and they're kept in this thing. And it, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the Truman Show. Uh, how years later the Truman Show comes out with this kind of absurdist view that, or maybe not so absurdist view that, you know, you're just kind of in a show somewhere for somebody else's, uh, you know, viewing pleasure. And then here it was, he wrote that. I don't even know what year he wrote uh, Slaughterhouse Five. That was like back, what, in the 60s, maybe early 70s. I don't recall, maybe even earlier, but it I just- I think you wrote in 66. Yeah, so just very, very prophetic um, when I when I happened to, to come across that as uh, that's cool. But you're so you're you're kind of even conversationally talking with you though. You're very um, you know your style is is very stream of consciousness, right? You just uh, you get really excited about a topic and then boom, all of a sudden you run with it. And I I, I definitely uh, I think that's that's just really fucking cool that you have that capacity mentally to take those ideas and get them put out on paper and, uh, and organize them. Um, I've always fancied myself as a good writer, but only in short bursts, right? Like I could write a, a review or an article or a paper or whatever. I've done that quite a bit, but anything longer than that, I just lose it. Like just the, the idea of organizing my thoughts in such a fashion to me, uh, is very, very daunting. 
Well, you, you bring up the point I was actually just going to say is it, it probably has something to do with the schizophrenia. My thoughts don't organize that way. They're, they're, it, it just isn't a thing. So having something just come out and just keep on coming out and keep on coming out. I mean, a lot of schizophrenics are artists. And you see some of the art by them. I mean, like Edvard Book, the famous one, Know the Cry. Right. So the, the, the wiring in, in the schizophrenic's brain is very, very different. And it makes thought organization tricky. So I could never plan a book or plan a film, no storyboard. I want this scene and this scene and this scene. Okay, I'm going to plot out my entire book. These are the characters. These are how they're going to meet. This is what, how they're going to interact. My brain doesn't organize that way. So it, that kind of works for me. It's just like, I mean, Hunter Thompson said, I, w- I wouldn't you know, advocate you know, uh, no, no drugs, booze, and bad crazes on anybody. But in my case, it's worked. <laughs> So in my case, I mean, it, it's it's the only way I know how to do it anyway. Uh, I don't know if I'd want anyone to have this brain for everything else it does to you. But it, it has been helpful to me to, to find these ways to get my thought processes out. First, and I, I, I started, I mean, I was drawn to the magazine industry when I first in college because it had graphic design and writing. So once again, kind of art, which and you can see where you would go into film from that. Sure. Also, as you and I both know, I'm huge in the music. Yes. Music is a major part of film, and music is a, plays a huge part in, in ambient sanity. That is the, the major the thing that why this all happened. He loved this type of music. He loved it on this type of equipment. So, yeah, there's, there's no organization there. It's just bits and pieces of my mind floating out there somehow. Hopefully it's cohesive when people, I mean, people have liked the books that I've read, you know, written so far and people, I mean, once again, nothing is hugely popular, but the people who have seen the films and read the books have, have liked what I've done. So obviously my type, lack of organizational thought process in, in this particular medium seems to work. Yeah. And, you know, uh, putting the, the personal twist on it, cause you know, you mentioned a couple of bands, you mentioned uh yes. And of course you mentioned Pink Floyd. And uh, if I remember recently, did you get your first tattoo? I I just got my most recent tattoo. Oh, okay, gotcha. And that's my, my a first Pink tattoo, Floyd yeah, reference. And that, that, that's that's a Pink Floyd reference. In other words, um, I once again, I haven't done anything for myself in a long time. I don't go out to eat. I don't buy clothes. I don't do anything like that. I'm not dating anyone. So I said, damn it, I'm I'm going to get a tattoo because that's only for me. You don't do it for anyone else. And I was thinking, what do I want? Yeah, the first thing I originally thought of was uh, the the armored armadillo from e- uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer's Tarkus album. Yeah, because I always liked that design, so I brought it to the tattoo artist, and it would be unbelievably difficult, which means incredibly expensive in, in several days. And then I thought <laughs> and thought and thought, and "Wish You Were Here" is one of my favorite albums of all time. I went to see the tour, the "Wish You Were Here" tour, when that came out in '76. Oh, nice! And I I love the design that was inside, you know, the album, and also on on the record, on the you no know, right, right where the, the the spindle hole is. Right. And I love the lyrics. I mean, the, the, the lyrics to the song, Wish You Were Here, I think, are some of the most incredible lyrics ever written. And then just the title of the song and the album, um, as I mentioned before, I have no family left. Uh, several of my closest friends are either dead or very, very far away from me. So Wish You Were Here is kind of a mantra that goes over and over my head. So I said, that is the perfect thing for me to get. I love right. the design. I love the lyrics, you know, so you think you can tell heaven from hell, blue skies from pain. I mean, it's just, it, it just hits me so hard lyrically. And so that's what I got. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, since this song clearly means so much to you, we're going to go ahead and play it right now. So here it is, the legendary Pink Floyd and one of the most iconic songs ever written, 
wish you were here. Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail A smile from a veil Do you think you can tell
So, and, and the funny, and the great thing about getting this tattoo is the guy that gave it to me is going to be a character in my next book. Oh. Uh, he, at some point, this guy, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's 49 years old. He looks 35. He used to sell drugs for the Mexican cartel. Uh, he, he, he dealt drugs for Hell's Angels and the Mafia. And he's talking about quarter million, no half a million dollar deals, carrying a gun, watching people get whacked in front of him left and right. Had an 11-year no, habit and kicked he, – he shouldn't look as good as he does. He says, I, I, on the one hand, it goes, I want to go to kids' classes and talk about the days of drugs. But you, you look at me and you think, oh, my God, he can't be you know, that. He looks like he's 30. So that's not a good message. So I, 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 I would love to do something with him where he meets somebody who's so different, like some 20-year-old girl from Ireland who's a Christian missionary. Yeah. And I, I mean, not like their boyfriend, girlfriend, but just two people opposite. Somehow they, they meet, interact. I don't know what it's going to be. It just, it just seems like something where, once again, you put my fragmented mind and get that concept. But, but he, you know, he, he, I mean, he loved doing the tattoo. I mean, he was, I mean, he, and it's just like I said, I just like having this here. Yeah. And, and, and it fit in with the book. So, yeah. So maybe, so that's, that's just how that happened. There you go. Well, let's, let's, uh, look into the future here really quick then. So, you know, we touched on it a bit kind of before we hopped on air, but um, you're now currently working on a stage production, correct? I wrote a play the last year okay. uh, about uh, about um, the, the most famous professional wrestling incident of all time, you know, the, the Montreal Screwjob. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that or, or I mean, it's that was the one where anyone who follows uh, professional wrestling, this was when Vince McMahon uh, and Bret Hart was his champion, had been with the company for 13 years, was his top drawer, but his drawing power was starting to wane, and Vince McMahon was having difficulties with uh, because WCW, the company that I used to work for, was kicking their ass at the time. So he wanted to get rid of Bret because he couldn't afford he, – he never s- signed you know, contracts with people, multi-million dollar. Everything was percentage of what you, you – know, if you were – Top of the uh, of the the gate for for pay per view, you were going to get a higher percentage. So everything was that. No one was on a guaranteed contract. He signed one with Brett, and he he didn't want he didn't want to fulfill it. So he was trying to figure a way. Uh, WCW wanted Bret Hart, and, he, and as Vince McMahon went to Brett, says, "Okay, I want you to you no, know, you go to WCW. That's great. I want you to lose the championship. You you got to we got to get the belt off you if you're leaving." And I want you to lose at this upcoming match in Montreal. Now, Brett is from Canada. He says, I, I can't do it there. Any place but there. So they, they had an agreement. And then during the match, all of a sudden, the, the referee, one, two, three, and Brett loses. <laughs> now, there's been two schools of thought about what happened. One is, is that Vince really did screw him. That he absolutely went back on his word, screwed him, had a, a quick count out. Uh, later, there, there was cameras where Brett actually gets in a physical altercation with Vince McMahon and punches him in the face. You don't see the punch, but you see Vince later with uh, a black eye. The other school of thought is, no, this thing was all set up. You know, Brett was on it. So it's called the Montreal Screwjob, it's, and it's as Shakespearean as it gets to me. I mean, Vince McMahon is like the Mad King, and, and Bret Hart is you know, your, your knight, you know, your champion. And it has this huge moral dilemma, as all Shakespearean plays do. Oh, who's right? Vince says, I own the promotion. I can call the shots. I can do what I want to do. Bret Hart's thinking is, I've been the champion. I'm the one that made you money. It was my ability to make someone that people want to go see, put butts in seats. That's why we were so successful the last few years. So I wrote this entire play in Shakespearean language, Shakespearean oh, English. Jesus. 
which is not easy. Once again, I started steeping myself and I read every Shakespearean play. But once I got the rhythm, the rhythm, the iambic uh, pentameter and, and the verbiage, it just flowed. And it's, I mean, so I've been sending it along to uh, Shakespearean uh, companies all over the country. Uh, I actually ran into, I, I have a part-time job now at a little hotel nearby. And who do I check in last week but a Broadway producer? So because I hate talking to people, we started getting talking, and, and she goes, she goes, I'm a brought. She goes, send me your play. It doesn't mean anything's got to happen, but you know how many people who've written a play would love to get it in the hands of an actual Broadway producer who's actually won Tonys. Right. So I've gotten some feedback from people because this is the way I see it. One, this play is going to actually have to have a live wrestling match on it. You know, to, to show the screw job. Right now, in real in real wrestling, the same two guys can go town to town, and they are never going to do the exact same act because a lot of it's going to depend on how they feel and what the crowd's doing. Now, the finish is always going to be scripted, so no matter how many times that this play is ever put on, no matter how many times no they you know how many weeks in a row, the ending has to be the same because that's the screw job. But what they do during the ring could change. Sure. So I'm thinking this this play, if it ever gets produced, you know, locally, off Broadway, whatever. You're going to have you know, the actual you know, theater aficionado because it's Shakespeare. You know, it's the Shakespearean language, and it has all the elements of a Shakespeare play. Like I said, the Mad King, the, the court jester. I mean, Vince had, a, had a, um, a wrestler that he called Doink the Clown. So that's the jester. And, of course, court jesters are mostly the wise fools. Uh, you have uh, – you know, it's perfect for monologues and soliloquies. Because you have this big moral dilemma, and, and both of them, the Vince McMahon character and the Bret Hart character, in my play, the Bret Hart character is actually a Mexican a luchador named Hombre. And, and, and the person that actually he wrestles in the real Montreal uh, uh, screw job was uh, you know, Shawn Michaels, um, the heartbreak kid. I call him little Takastudo. Takastudo is the actual medical term for heartbreak. Oh, shit. So, I mean, it, it just, everything seems to work together. So there, you have these long monologues, you know, oh, what do I do? What's the right thing? What's the moral thing to do here? Right. So I don't try to trash Vince McMahon. I actually try to give that he actually has a legitimate point of view. If you believe what happened really happened, he really did screw Brett to do because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. Who had the right to do it? So I, I try to present that as like I said, this, you know, here's his knight, right? You know, right. He's, he's his knight, his champion. And I'm your champion. I'm representing your territory. So it's so, And so I've had a few of the Shakespearean uh, the play producers tell me they think this is like one of the funniest and greatest things they've seen. No one has said it's. I mean, five theaters just now have been reopened, but I mean, I once again the way I extrapolate it. What if this thing goes all the way to Broadway? I said, imagine. I said, if Vince McMahon was smart enough, he'd actually want to produce it himself because this could you know, go to his ego. You might win a freaking Tony for producing <laughs> a Broadway play that makes fun of you in in some ways. Right. So that's the other thing that I've been working on, trying to get that play to the right people, see what could happen to it, talking to some of the wrestlers that I knew to see if I can get them attached to it. If I get Sting attached to play Vince McMahon, that would make more people. If I get Mick Foley to play, uh, no, Dunk, the court jester, that might be just like trying to get a film. If you get stars attached, producers you know, will say, OK, that has more interest to me. I can see this making money. Yeah. So I've never done this before. I've never written a play, never tried to get it produced. So this is another fun thing I'm doing along with a, a hybrid novel, graphic novel, trying to see where it goes. Yeah, and it's the perfect 
kind of uh, vehicle for the self-professed media junkie, right, who has had his hands <laughs> in just about every corner of the entertainment business uh, in radio, in wrestling, in music, in film, and running, you know, movie theaters and everything. So you've definitely, uh, I guess, uh, spanned all of those uh, chasms of, of the entertainment business. So I'm curious, though. Now, I'm sure that there's probably still some legalities and stuff you can't talk about, but um, you ran into some, uh, we'll call it some hiccups with, uh, you know, publishing uh, the Sid Vicious stuff. Is that still in kind of litigation limbo and all that stuff? It is still in litigation limbo. The main reason for that is uh, my lawyer in Arkansas, I know where Sid lives and where we filed, decided to do this pro bono for me because this would be unbelievably expensive. Now, because she's doing it pro bono, I can't push her. I can't say, what's going on? Why aren't we going faster than this? And whenever something happens, that's when it happens. Right. So I can't. So the last uh, I spoke to her, I mean, I, I contact her like once a month. Hey, what's going on? So the last thing she told me was, that you no, know, uh, Sid's lawyer gave some discovery. I mean, we were, you know, she was demanding some stuff to find out what they had, so they released that. Um, it, it's going to, I mean, we're, we're, we have two goals in mind. Uh, we're trying to give Sid basically two choices. It says, you either, if you don't want this book to come out, never see the light of day, I have to be paid for my work on it. I mean, you refuse to sign a contract, but that doesn't mean you're not liable for the work you know, that I did. Sure. So you want that book squashed, I need to be paid. And if you don't want to do that, then I have the right to put the book out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, let me make what I'm what I'm going to make it. And the funny thing is, there's nothing in there that he didn't like when we were doing it together. Yeah. And so a, a quick recap is, uh, you know, Barry and Sid were uh, once uh, quite close and uh, you guys had agreed to kind of do a book uh, about about Sid's life. And it was kind of not a not a traditional book. Right. Like he wanted to include some some kind of anecdotal things from, you know, childhood and some philosophical stuff and not just uh, I'm a wrestler and here's all my wrestling stuff. It was really kind of meant to be more of an introspective work. Um, and and you being somebody who was already familiar with him. Um, you guys had agreed theoretically on this formula and what the book was going to be. And it seemed like it was going good. And then basically it got published and he, for some reason, just decided that it didn't represent what he wanted it to represent or somebody in his camp decided it didn't represent what he wanted it to represent. And so they had it pulled, right? Well, it's, it's even a weirder story than that. I originally didn't actually want to write the book because I've had cases where if you work with a friend and we were really close friends for 32 years, right. it often doesn't go well. Sure. He had another friend start the book and he didn't like the way it was going so i recommended a really good friend of mine who's a brilliant writer and he loved it he loved it he loved it and then he didn't like that now the thing that happened with my friend is my friend sent him a contract and the minute he did that that's when it stopped and i tried to get sid to write you know to sign a, i said i said it protects both of us i said you have to have everything spelled out how it's going to be and he got incensed about that ah you know because when i say i said it protects both of us he goes you have nothing that i want <laughs> and it, it wasn't about that i mean it's about if we set actually what no how much i'm going to get paid what's going to happen am i going to get a percentage just a flat fee whatever it just makes everything spelled out so we avoid what ends up happening Sure. When he didn't want to sign the contract, I should have just ended it right then and there. But I was invested in it. Right. I was coming out with with you know, with with uh, how the narrow was going to be, and like I said, he wasn't interested in doing the wrestling stuff because he didn't. He he never was that 
passionate about it. It just became a living for him. Right. He really did want to talk about his childhood. He didn't want to talk about his family, uh, he, and he wanted to talk about his influence, which a lot of that is music. Right, exactly. So that, that hit me. So I came up with a lot of ways to handle the parts he didn't want to handle. In other words, uh, he had an, an episode with another wrestler where there was a horrible fight where they both were injured. And I said, we can't do a book about you and ignore that. So I came up with an idea. Let's pretend there's someone interviewing you, and it's just going to be a back-and-forth interview, and bam, that's the end of that. And then because wrestling spurs so many rumors and Sid, like anybody else, <laughs> has so many ridiculous rumors about him, I says, we have to deal with that too. So I created a chapter that I called, let's throw everybody under the bus. Right. <laughs> and we just made the most ridiculous things that I could think of. Like uh, Sid was a softball player and a very, very good one. A lot of people said, oh, you're missing all these shows because you're playing softball. So in the book, I said, no, that wasn't at all. I was a semi-pro tiddlywink player and tiddly thumb is a real thing. Right. So I try to make things absolutely absurd. So, I mean, later on, he was trying to claim that the book was pure narration. You know, if that's true, you, you speak into a tape recorder and then you get someone to transcribe. It took me to shape it, come up with a narrative flow, come up with ideas like that, come up with how to present you know, the material. The part that got him upset, I mean, I think it has to do with the contract. That's my thing. He doesn't like the paper things. Sure. Uh, he's very, very generous. Like when we were together, he brought all the dinners and things like that. So he's not like he's a skinflint. He really was a very, very good friend in that way. When I owned the theater, we talked every day. He showed such an interest. Nobody asked me how this worked and that worked. I said after after nine years of owning, he said, you could probably own and run a small theater like this. You've been so inquisitive. But what happened was uh, WWE uh, was interested in having him on one of their streaming services, uh, you know, having him a part of it. I said, this is perfect. It'll get you back into the zeitgeist again because he, he has been in it a lot. And when his book comes out, it's going to help promote that. He's been, we, I wrote an angle for him, uh, you know, a storyline that he absolutely loved. And I put that in the book. I mean, I thought, to be perfectly honest, I thought it was one of the most original things anyone thought in wrestling. So that old part in the book was all me. So when, when this WWE producer, he goes, oh, talk to Barry. He's my publicist. So he gave him my number. And he said, for some reason, was hostile to this guy. And I kept on saying, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? So the producer, he had my number in my email. So he was contacting me about it. And I, I tried to give him a reason why he was like this. So the reason I gave, which was true, was that Sid was having actually some physical problems at the time that he needed correcting. I understand where Sid came from originally. He said, you had no right to disclose that. And he's absolutely correct. I mean, I did not do it to be an intrusive, to invade his privacy, to give information that he didn't want out there. I didn't want this thing with WWE, which I thought was going to be so good on so many levels for him. I wanted to give them something that was true. I didn't tell him the exact reason. Sure. But when he heard about that, he blew up. And then he went on his podcast that I set up for him and just went after me in a, in a vicious way. So when he did that, I had already copywritten the book after he didn't want to sign the contract because I had to protect myself. Sure. And I just want to make sure I had control over the manuscript. So when the blow up happened, I said, I'm putting it out there. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to put this out there. It doesn't hurt him. I mean, I, it's not a kid. I didn't write stuff, you know, to kiss and tell. I mean, there's some stuff that I know uh, that uh, he would not want in there. And I didn't put it in I, I had no interest, you know, when we were working together, he had no interest in that, and I had no interest in that. 
And I mean, technically, I could do a book like that now. You don't have to have authorization to write a biography. If I interviewed his wife or things like that, and she told me that here's his first-hand stuff, I could write all that no negative stuff. I have no interest to this day of doing that. Yeah, there was never I, any intention for, you know, slander or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It was it was really just meant as, you know, kind of a reflective of of the stuff he wanted to talk about more or less. Right, and I and I presented a way that he absolutely loved. I said I said this book is going to be meta and I explained to him meta. I said this is a book that knows it's a book. I right. said there's some chapters where I where he mentions no my writer is going to do this. No, and then and I, I have song lyrics from the song. So I did things that I thought, because you know, he said, when I visited him in Arkansas, he took me all around the places where he lived, where he worked, all the farmland. Because right. he correctly surmised, he says, this is really going to give you a feel, a visual and a visceral feel of what it was like to meet me in those spaces and, the, and, and what that was like. And he was right. I really could get an idea, and that did help the writing. But I, you know... He, he he would talk, and I would then, I mean, had to write the book. Right. Uh, so when all of a sudden, when I found out that he actually sent my manuscript to another writer, that's when I got livid. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I, I contacted that writer. and says, no, I have the copyright on this. If I see passages that I specifically wrote and things like that, that's going to be a pro- that's going to be problematic. So even to this day, I'm not trying to screw him. The lawsuit is not, I want to get money out of him. I want to do this. You, I have no interest in that. I want to either be compensated for the writing that I did, which I think is fair, and what I'm asking for is way below what a market price would be for someone who does have a certain amount of fame and has a niche audience that would buy the book. Right. Uh, So I either want to be compensated to a very, very mild degree for that, or failing that, let me send the book out, make whatever I'm going to make. It does. You like the book. It doesn't trash you in any way, shape, or form. He's read every single word of it. The one thing he asked me to take out, I did. Uh, I mean, toward, towards the end of the book, I actually write it. No, I write a part about all the wrestlers that never made it to A65. If it was any other industry, uh, the amount of early deaths and the type of deaths, there'd be a, con- a congressional investigation. They said, we can't have this. Right. It's worse than football. It's worse than coal mining. Yeah. And there was one name he wanted omitted. Because they were very, very close friends. I, my argument was is at, at the Oscars, when you have the in-memoriam scroll, yeah. whenever, whenever there's a name left off, that's when people go crazy. How did you not leave, put that person in? Do you not think that person was worthy of commemorating in the Oscar broadcast? So I tried to make that case. Where I said, by leaving this person off this list, it's going to show disrespect. Because I don't care. I don't want it there. I, I respected his wishes for that. I don't want to cross him for that. Yeah. And like I said, there was other stories that I heard you know, from you know, from his wife and other people. And I didn't want to put that one in there. You no, know, because like I said, the idea was not to I mean he gave a lot of embarrassing stories that he actually thought were fun yeah. about his childhood that a lot of, a lot of other people would say, Ooh, I, I don't come off so great here. But he wanted them in there. <laughs> yeah, I you know, like that. Self deprecating <laughs> humor or being able to, you know, look at yourself with a with a a different point of view and, and share the fact that, Hey, I'm just as human as the rest of you, I think endears people, uh, to, to, uh, you know, your, your cause or your, or your message. Well, that, and, and Sid is not a big meathead. He really isn't. I mean, when you spend enough time with him, he comes off that way and he absolutely does have a temper as, as I've seen. <laughs> and, 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 and he, and he absolutely does have a bit of self-destructiveness in him. 
I mean, this has been a thing with him, with other, you know, with uh, with other friends and family and all that, and it's sad. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing this. The, the lawsuit is not. I'm going to sure. get you. I want your money. It's just I work very, very hard to write what I consider is an extremely good, a very, very different book as far as a wrestler. No autobiography. Well, not auto. It's just a biography. Um, well, actually, it is because you know, I mean, because he worked with me on it. Yeah. But I wrote it and I shaped it and I came up with a narrative flow for it. And I took his story and I said, ah, this is how we're going to approach this. Here's how I'm going to write that. And then there were some chapters that I completely wrote to compensate for certain things that he, he didn't want to talk about, which I understood. And I think that work deserves to be compensated. Uh, or And I, I would actually would prefer to have the book out there. I would like to see what it does. Uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, there's some selfishness in there because if this book sells well, it does raise my profile up. People might want to get my other books as results. So it, it would be the easiest way for me to get to the next level. You wrote the book on this guy and it has an automatic audience that might read it. But I just want what I think is fair. You know that I did this work and I should, and I should be paid for it. So it's, it's not a, a lawsuit of, of uh, vindictiveness. I don't want to hurt him. I want nothing, no, but good things for him. Yeah. Uh, based on what happened, I can't see us mending fences or anything like that, because there's too many things were said that were so personal, things that he knew about me. Right. Uh, but but that said, I, I, I don't have it in for him. I, yeah. I, I want him to have a, a happy, healthy life, but I want my work you know, to, you know, to, to be compensated. Right. So that that's for that. So I don't know how long it's going to take. These things can be dragged out and with a pro bono lawyer, sure. but you don't have the right. And I'm not going to. I'm not, I mean, if I push on it, you can say, hey, you know, I'm doing this as a favor because I want to help you considering what this situation is. Right. So whenever it plays out, no, it'll play out. I hope it plays out where no, nobody feels that they absolutely got screwed by it. I mean, I personally like out there. I think, I mean, I would be more than happy if it does really well to, you know, to, to give him a percentage of it. I don't, don't want to hoard it. I just want it out there because I worked really hard on it and I'm very, very proud of, of the writing I did with it. Sure. And honestly, it's just, you know, it's out there. It's just kind of sitting in limbo and one way or another to have a resolution, just to have it, you know, mentally be able to just move on from it, I think uh, would would be awesome as well. So, um, yeah, when you have my brain, you can't have things scratching at it. <laughs> you you got to right. get it off. Well, then speaking of your brain, uh, Barry, so we've got the new book uh, is out and um, I assume that it's going to hit more platforms. Uh, is it available just digitally? Is it also in physical format? It's, it, it, the book that's out right now on Blurb is actually a special edition. OK, so 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 this book is um, it's a lot larger it has you know, the heavy stock gloss paper to make the, the illustrations absolutely pop. Right. So anyone, so anyone who gets this, it's a limited edition. So that's, it costs so much because it, you know, it, it costs so much to print. You no, know, okay. it's, it's a, large, a much larger format. I am going to go to the traditional 5 by 8 you know, hardcover paperback, and that will be available on Amazon, and that will be a lot more reduced price. Okay. But I wanted to get the bigger version out there. Just because, like, it is a limited. If someone buys it and they send it to me, they said they want me to sign it. So if, when I kick off, it might be worth something. So that's what. <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 no, and and this is also available on Kindle, the the large format, because obviously Kindle, no matter what size it is, you're going to see it on your screen or on your phone. Right. But that's what if anyone goes to blurb.com and goes to you know, uh, you know the bookstore and puts in ambient sanity, like like I sent to you, you can see the 15 page preview to see if you even like it. When you see the cost of 41 dollars something, you go, oh, is he kidding? No, he's no, he's not this famous, right? It's because of the large format and the the stock paper and how 
gorgeous, you know, the cover, the back cover, and and Gene Pedroso's illustrations look. Yeah. So I, I'd love some people to buy that, but in a couple of weeks, it will be available in the more traditional format of paperback, hardcover, at a more reasonable price, and that will be on Amazon. Yeah. And now that you've got that project more or less done, you've got the play is pretty much written. I know you're not just sitting on your ass doing nothing. There's got to be something else brewing in that brain of yours. So what's the next project that we're going to see from you or or hear about uh, from you in the near future? Well, the next project is, is a little bit trickier only because it costs a lot more money. And because I would like to make one at least one more film. Yeah. I, I feel I, and I, I want to make it with my partner, Rick Schmidt, you know, who's the iconic filmmaker who wrote the book Feature Filmmaking at Used Car Prices. That's what Kevin Smith uh, wrote when he made Clerks. He's actually coming out with Clerks 3 now. He's shooting that now. Vin Diesel uh, picked up that book. That's what got him to, to make his first feature, uh, not feature, a short film. Book saw and got cast in Saving Private Ryan. So I've made six films. I made four of them with him. He's very reluctant because he's 77 years old and making films is exhausting. Editing them for a year is exhausting. Right. But I do feel I have one more film to make. So that I'm constantly thinking, in other words, the funny thing is on Facebook now, I've made a lot of uh, celebrity friends, the type where if I PM them, they'll answer me back. <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and I've actually you know, ta- you know, talked to some of them about if I make this film, would you be in it? Because one, obviously it would attract possibly financing. Two, these films are shot in three, four, five days because it's all improv. We don't know what we're going to do. You don't have to memorize a script. And then that's when the editing, where I give everything to Rick, find the film in this. So I would love that to happen. That would be kind of fun. Um, Books, I never know when I'm going to write one. Like I said, if I write the the sequel to Ambient Sandy, uh, uh, a germ of an idea to come, I'm going to start typing and that's it. No, uh, no. Three hours later, forty-five pages are written. Right. So, I, once again, I don't plan anything. I'm thinking about a film, working on you no know, ambient sanity, working on the play, but I don't have anything you no know, concrete. I don't have an idea for a film except I'm I'm going to be sixty-four. Uh, you know, that's the Paul McCartney age. Will you still need me? And no one's here to <laughs> we, you know, need me or feed me. Right. Sixty-five is you no know, Medicare, uh, no Social Security age. I you know I'm much closer to the end than I am the beginning. So and we're still in COVID, and anyone can die at any minute. So those are the thoughts that run through this, you know, this fractured brain of mine, and that's what I, I kind of lead towards. I don't want to be maudlin, but it is something I think about. Tomorrow, an hour from now, could be it. What if that's it? What well, no? What happens next? That's I think that kind of comes through an ambient sanity. I mean, when you're going to another dimension, what does that mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, there's nothing concrete, but those are the ideas that are running around the blender of my brain. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I think the stuff that you've done, um, it, it is it is unique. It is original. It has uh, a very specific voice. And obviously, uh, you're kind of a, a niche market person. Um, but I just every time I, I, I hear about what you're doing or what you're working on and, you know, when I get the chance to talk to you, the passion comes out in the way that you talk. And, uh, you know, clearly you're in it as, as passion projects for you, personal projects, not just this is my work. You're like, this is really what I am all about. And I, I think that's uh, I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, an artist in the truest sense of the word, uh, Barry, is, is definitely how I would define you. So uh, what do you want to leave our listeners with today? Any final thoughts for the day? 
Uh, the final thought for the day is I'm just hoping that if you do find my books, if you do find my films, I hope that somehow, you know, just like Mike just said, I, I consider myself like a, a human canvas where all of my thoughts I felt I had to get out, not because I had such superior things to say or impart wisdom to people, but I think that my life is representative of a lot of other people. And just that I just had such a need to get it out there, people have actually come up to me and said, I relate to that. There's something about there that I, I understand about how you think is how I think. And that's, that's kind of what the artist does. And so I, I would like to be able to do some more of that because it's very, very fulfilling. I mean, when you own a movie theater, when you start a film festival, when you do a radio show like I did for artists, I love being the conduit for the art as well, the, 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 the person that gets other people and the artists together. When you're the artist producing the content, you're kind of all those things. So I, I just hope to, whatever goes on, I don't have legacy of a kids. You know, someone who's going to do better than I am and anything like that. So I, I just hope that whatever it is I've done, if future generations somehow stumble onto any of these things, they go, hey, that's kind of cool. I, I like that. That. You know, that meant something to me. And if it's one person or, or a million people, it's the same to me. Someone somewhere got a feel for what some of the things I felt about. And, and, it, and if it made them feel something, that what else can I ask for? Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Barry Norman out there in the world making awesome stuff. Uh, make sure you check out Ambient Sanity. Follow him on all the social medias. Go to Blurb and order it. Get that physical limited edition copy. Send it to him. He'll sign it for you. Who knows? Maybe he'll lick it and give it all kinds of good nastiness <laughs> just, to, just to make it that much more valuable. So, Barry, thanks again for hanging out today on Misery Point Radio. Always awesome to chat with you. Open door for you anytime, man. Oh, Mike, thanks for having me. I love talking to you, my friend. And thanks, as always, to all of you out there in the wasteland for hanging out today. And now I'm going to leave you with a brand new tune from an up-and-coming band. So check them out from Manchester, UK, the heavy gothic rock band known as Gospelheim. Here's their first single, released just a couple of days ago, called Into Smithereens. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for their forthcoming debut album, KFMP Out, bitches! Bitches!